sanctuary that you can grab um, if you need one as our gift to you. So once again, we're reading from Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 through 29. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to the destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be back with you. And if you're new, joining us for the first time, a warm welcome to you, whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or whether you're exploring the faith. We're really glad that you're here, and you're also pretty much in the same boat as the rest of us because we just moved here to start a morning service just a few weeks ago. So um, we are continuing through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, looking at the life of Jesus, and we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for the last 10 to 12 weeks or so, and the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto for life in his kingdom, meaning the Sermon on the Mount, it's a challenging sermon, but it's not meant to be read as this series of impossible standards that were to brush aside as hyperbole, but it's actually the way that we as apprentices of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, look like Jesus once we're brought into his kingdom as a gift. And today we get to the end of the sermon, and hmm, what an end, <laughs> what an end to the sermon, right? You'd expect, you know, like loving, gentle Jesus to end it with a you know, a funny story or a pat on the back, like, you got this, but he ends in a minor chord with, and he lays out a series of binaries. So two roads, uh, two trees, two houses. And he's describing, in very black and white terms, who is in his kingdom and who's not. And we don't like this, uh, especially in our culture, maybe even more in particular younger generations. We dislike extremes. We appreciate nuance and qualifiers. And Jesus uses nuance all the time. He's a master teacher, so he does that. But there are times when nuance is inappropriate. So imagine after church, 
you walk outside and you see a child of one of our parents, you know, run out in the street and there's a car coming. And the parent goes, hey, Sally, um, I know you're going through a lot, but like, you know, just if you feel like it, things may end badly if you stay there. So, you know, you do you, but I encourage you to maybe come back to, to here, right? You, you wouldn't think, oh, wow, I'm so glad they're, they're just using a lot of nuance, you know, to, to re- no, like a, a loving parent will, you know, communicate clearly and firmly, right? If not running out into the street and going out to grab them. And so that's what Jesus is doing. This is a time where we don't want nuance. And this is coming from a place of divine wisdom and love. So that's his tone. And what's Jesus's main point here with these sections? You could, you could sum it up this way. He cares about authenticity. Authenticity. So when I was younger, I won't tell you how much younger, but when I was younger, I saw an ad for a nice looking watch online and it was cheap. And so I ordered it. I mean, I just struck gold. It came in the mail. I was like, oh, this feels kind of flimsy. And, you know, sure enough, two months later, it stopped working. Why? Because I had bought an inauthentic watch. And Jesus in a similar way is saying, just like, I mean, he's speaking to large crowds and he knows that there are people in the crowds, just as there are in every church today, um, probably even right here in Doxology Church, including maybe the leaders. We're not exempt from this either. There are people who think they know and follow Jesus, but actually they don't. And when the storms come, be it a dream shattered, suffering, or maybe just at the end of their life, they'll find themselves to be inauthentic, right? They're not actually a follower of Jesus. And so that's Jesus's concern here. He wants you to make sure you are an authentic disciple because what's so unnerving about a lot of these images is the people who aren't actually followers of Jesus don't realize they're inauthentic, okay? So Jesus gives us four qualities, if you will, of an authentic disciple so that we can help one another and help ourselves. Okay, so he says qualities, not only these four, but at least these four. Authentic disciples have eyes ahead, careful ears, active hands, and dependent hearts. Okay, eyes ahead, careful ears, active hands, dependent hearts. Or if that's too hard for you to remember, as it's pretty hard for me to remember, just you can just think of just the body parts, eyes, ears, hands, heart. Okay? And this will go right down the line. Okay, so we're just going to start at the top and work our way down. So first, authentic disciples have their eyes ahead. So in this first section— and verse 12, by the way, the golden rule there, he's, he's summing up the Sermon on the Mount and, and all of the law of the Bible, really. So then he gets into verse 13 and 14, and he says, it's this picture of these two roads, and he says, so imagine you're walking down a path and you get to a fork in the road. On the left is a wide gate leading to a wide path. The air is breezy, the grass looks green, and huge crowds are walking along it just looking carefree as they do. Yeah, it's to the left, or the left for you guys. Then to the right is a narrow gate, and only one person can kind of squeeze through it, and only one person can walk, you know, um, on the path at a time, and it looks hard and rocky. And Jesus says, don't be duped, because the crowds that look so carefree that went through the wide gate and are on the wide path, they're like sheep marching off a cliff to their own destruction, and those on the hard, the narrow gate and the narrow path, it looks hard and it often is hard. But in the end, it leads to far brighter skies and greener hills. And with this image, he's, there's at least a few things that are captured in this vivid picture. 
And the first thing he's saying is everybody is on a path. Okay, even if you think you're the most neutral person when it comes to spirituality or you think you're the most non-religious person in the world, everybody is on a path, okay? Because everybody banks their life on what the purpose of life is and where human beings are going. So first, everyone's on a path. There's no such thing as neutrality. Second, he says, only one path leads to life. And this is part of the edge. So Jesus is, in the clearest terms, he's not a universalist who says all paths lead to God. Now, these aren't the ravings of an insecure fundamentalist, okay? This is the measured clarity of the one who made reality and is speaking with the tone of love, okay? And the difference between the two is those on the wide path heading to destruction, these are people, okay, it takes a lot of different forms, but fundamentally, they are people who have chosen that living life for myself and rejecting Jesus is going to be better than living with Jesus and depending on Jesus. Those on the narrow path that lead to life are those who have realized I need to depend on Jesus just to get into the kingdom in the first place, but then for him to be my source of strength as I walk according to his teachings and commandments, and they ultimately find life. Okay, so that's number two. Only one path leads to life. And then uh, number three here, what he's saying uh, with respect to these paths is, what was number three, Steve? Ah, okay. Number three. So notice he says that the wide path has, it's just these huge crowds on the path. So he's saying part of what makes the narrow path so difficult is you're going against the herd. So just as in Jesus' day, you know, he starts with these big crowds, and then over time, people, more and more people walk away when they realize how ludicrous sounding his, like, what he's about is, and so they leave him. And so it is in our day. So many people will think you are ludicrous for following Jesus, right? So if if you, if you believe that the that church family in many ways transcends nuclear or biological family, okay, if you hold to Jesus' teachings on money and sexuality and gender, okay, if you believe that ultimately life of, a life of freedom is found in submitting your autonomy to Jesus, a lot of people are going to think you're crazy. You'll think you're crazy at many times, but Jesus is saying be thoughtful. Okay, keep your eyes ahead on the, des- on the destination that you're going. So don't be like the crowds who follow the ethic of instant gratification or the ethic of what's popular according to the day. Be thoughtful and keep your eyes ahead on the destination you're heading to. And so a picture that kind of captures this that I heard from another pastor that I thought was helpful, but I'm adapting a bit to my own, uh, to my own example in life. So when I officiate weddings, Typically, I am a creature of habit, so I have a routine. What I do is at home, I get my nicest suit on, nicest shoes, and then on the way to the wedding, I find a, if I can find it, I find a hipster coffee shop near the venue, because hipsters are good at making coffee, and I go there you know, just to do some final run-throughs of the wedding ceremony and just make sure, like, okay, I'm familiar with it, um, just, yeah, so I'm, I'm ready to go for the couple. And often what I feel when I walk into these hipster coffee houses wearing the nicest suit I have is that I feel out of place, right? Like, almost everybody is in black jeans and a graphic tee, maybe a fedora, and I'm, like, this is projection, but I'm thinking, oh, they're just looking at me going, oh, the enemy's here, you know, big business, corporate, you know, capitalism, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like they're just judging every part of my being. 
But like, what's going on there? I feel out of place because I'm not dressed for where I am now. I'm dressed according to what my destination is. And if maybe if you're a, a bride who's been in your wedding dress and you've ever stopped somewhere on the way to your, you feel even more out of place, right? You go to a gas station or like somebody's not even wearing pants or you, like even if you go to a coffee shop, right? You feel out of place. Why? Because you don't, you're not dressing to fit in now. You're dressing to fit in later, see? And so what Jesus is saying is when you live according to my life and my teachings, you'll often feel out of place. Okay, you may get categorized as just a fool or a bigot or all of the above, but keep your eyes on the destination, right? Because when you do arrive there, you will fit right in. Like, this is the home I've been waiting for. Okay, so number one, an authentic disciple has their eyes ahead. Uh, Number two, moving through his teachings. Of course, we're not going into every uh, aspect of each one because we're covering them all in one swath, but we're covering the, the main themes he's getting at. So number two, an authentic disciple has careful ears. And here's the section of false prophets that he gets at. And see in verse 15, uh, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And so here he's mainly, well, he is speaking in the context of the church. So that's primarily the context that we're going to stick to. So he's saying there are leaders in the church who look nice, sound nice on the outside, but actually they're a wolf inside, right? Meaning they don't actually care about you. They don't actually care about Jesus. Fundamentally, they care about themselves. And so he's saying, pay attention to who you're paying attention to, right? The authentic disciple is thoughtful with who they're choosing to right, to absorb. And this is even more important today. So with the smartphone, incredible opportunity, right? I've learned much from teachers that I normally wouldn't have gotten exposed to. But the incredible danger is some fool miles away can end up in your living room or in your car, just shaping your mind and your affections away from Jesus. So who, who are the voices that you're paying attention to? And he gives at least two tests when it comes to, we always have to have humility, but he does give this category of false teachers. And he gives t- at least two tests for uh, how he can discern false teachers. And the first is the character test or the life test. So look in verse 17. So every healthy tree, the trees are analogous to teachers, leaders in the church. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. In other words, right, if a tree produces rotten fruit or doesn't produce at all, it's because, it's not because of anything on its outside. It's because of, right, what's going on inside the tree? What's going on at the roots? And so here he's getting at character. And so Jesus says it's not inherently icky or ungodly to look at the character as much as you can of a teacher to try to determine, and this this goes for me, this goes for anyone who's up here, anyone you're listening to on a podcast or on social media, to try to determine, are they trustworthy? And so some questions to ask, right, because anybody can look and sound nice on a stage for 30 minutes or even on a whole Sunday worship service for 75 but so questions we have to ask are things like, who are they when few people are watching? So if they have a spouse, who would their spouse say they are? Maybe more importantly, how would their children say they treat them? I've, in my seminary classes and as a pastor, I've just heard so many horror stories of people who were just, their parent was a monster at home. And then they get to church and all of a sudden just, it's all smiles. I'm just, everything's great. I'm just such a happy, loving parent. It, it's a miracle, especially in my seminary class, that these people are even still wanting to go into seminaries. How do they, how do they treat their children? How do they receive criticism 
Yeah, you can often pick up on this online or in a, in a worship service gathering. Uh, are they quick to initiate reconciliation? Do they speak with gentleness toward those across the aisle from them? Or they, do they dunk on their enemies to gain more followers? Are they held accountable in the context of a local church with all of its mess and issues and beauty? Or are they a lone ranger? So first, number one is the character test. Who is this person that I'm listening to? Second test he gives with respect to how can we uh, distinguish a false teacher is the content test or the teaching test. So in verse 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, uh, will enter the kingdom. And Lord, Lord," saying it twice is a, um, it's the way you express intense affection, okay, in Jesus' culture. So Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. And in Matthew's gospel, will of my Father and Jesus' teachings are more or less synonymous. So Jesus' teaching is the will of the Father, and will of the Father is Jesus' teaching. And so part of what he's saying here is the one who, yes, lives the will of my Father, but also the one who teaches the will of my Father. And so this one is often a lot easier to discern. So as you listen to somebody, what are they saying Okay, the actual words and their tone. And so I, I think one of the most helpful questions that you can ask to catch most of it is, does the large majority, if not all, of their teaching lead me toward the person of Jesus? Okay, and in obedience to the totality of his commands? Or do they lead me away from the person of Jesus? And maybe pick and choose what he says. This is one reason why we often just walk through whole books of the Bible so we can't avoid the challenging aspects. And so just as some examples, uh, there are many on the right, right, who will claim that they love Jesus, that they they love the scriptures, but then they will show flagrant disregard for the teachings of Jesus when they urge you to give your allegiance to a political party Okay, or they arouse your passions to love and serve the almighty dollar or a particular flag or make war or sow ethnic division. Okay, and there are many on the left who often identify as post-evangelical or ex-evangelical. And yes, like some, they, there are good points to be made. Okay, that I've, I've learned a lot. But ultimately, you'll find a common theme in teaching on this side is they'll claim the compassion and thoughtfulness of Jesus. But then you'll find they encourage a a very emotional, take what feels good and reject what feels bad approach to Scripture, right? Um, They often reject Jesus' first call, which is to deny yourself, right? Self-denial, deny yourself and follow me. And often they'll urge you away from the local church, the very church, that Jesus founded in the very church that Jesus has pledged himself to as his bride. Okay, and both left and right will steer you away from the gentle, enemy-loving prayer and compassion that was one of the hallmarks of Jesus' teaching. Okay, and so now that maybe everybody here is offended, just it, hear these words of Jesus. Okay, listen to the content, right, of who is teaching you because the authentic disciple has careful ears. Okay, that's number two. Eyes ahead, careful ears. Number three, what next? Uh, The authentic disciple has active hands. So here we get into his picture of two houses. 
Okay, so one is built by a wise man that withstands the storms of life. The other is built by a fool who builds his house on sand and it can't withstand the sands of life or the storms of life and it doesn't last. And so what is it that makes the wise man wise and the fool a fool? Well, verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Then verse 26, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. So you see what he's saying? He's saying, the authentic disciple isn't someone who listens to my teaching and goes, oh, that's so inspirational. Or like, that's really good information. I'll have to think about following it. No, the authentic disciple is one who hears the words of Jesus and puts them into practice. Okay, not perfectly, but there is the pursuit there of, of putting them to practice. And also know what he doesn't say here. He, he doesn't say only do it if it feels like your true self. Only do it if it, if your emotions are there, right? Because otherwise you'd be inauthentic. Anyway, he says that whoever hears these words of mine and does them is my disciple. And uh, there's a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Maybe some of you have read it. I think it was written in the early 2000s, but it was written by Neil Postman. And in the book, he points out the fact that, and I haven't fact-checked this, but it sounds, it sounds right. It's in a book, so it can't be wrong. But he, what he says is, a single edition of the New York Times today contains more information in it than a, than a 17th century European heard in her entire lifetime. And most of us consume more than, more information than, one in, than in an edition of a newspaper an entire day, right? Podcast, social media, all of it. And what Postman points out is because we are glutted with information, right? We just swim in pools of it. What happens is what he called, I think this is a helpful term. I think he coined it. He says, what this results in is a low information to action ratio, right? We're just used to hearing all kinds of, it was like, oh, so glad I know that. Oh, that's really inspiring. Oh yeah, that, that's great. Right. But then we don't actually do anything with it, right? Compounded is the fact that just on the news every day, we're hearing of just, you know, horror stories of wars in Ukraine and elsewhere and global warming and like devastating institutional corruption and failure. And we might throw something on social media about it. The movie just watch a cat video and move on with our day. So we're just used to like also receiving like all these problems that are too big for us to handle. And we just, we don't do anything like with our neighbors and with our bodies, okay, with the people around us actually practicing the teachings and the way of Jesus. And maybe even more so in a church tradition like ours where, you know, where we run in the reform tradition. And there are people here who probably may not count themselves as reformed. So if that's you, that's, that's okay. But one of the weaknesses of many in the reform tradition is we love precise theology. We love good theology. That's good. Jesus loves good theology, right? But a, a danger is that we become so in love with knowing, like, oh yeah, oh no, you're wrong. I know this because chapter and verse, systematic theology, biblical theology, blah, 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 right? Without actually doing it with our hands. And so this is, this is a problem for apprentices of Jesus. So a authentic disciple has active hands, right? We do what Jesus says. And so a question that we all have to ask ourselves is, especially as we head out of the Sermon on the Mount, right, into looking at the life of Jesus, I would just encourage you guys to read through the Sermon on the Mount again or think through what we've been going through over the past couple months and just ask yourself, where have I been digging in my heels and or refusing to budge with one of these commands, if not more? Okay, and it might be looking to earthly treasures to find safety and happiness, it might be not listening to Jesus, Jesus with respect to dating and sexuality. 
maybe he has a lot in there about reconciliation. Okay, and so maybe you're just refusing to reconcile or to ask forgiveness for bitterness you've been holding toward a person because it's going to be just a really awkward and comfortable conversation. Is your yes actually your yes? And then Jesus loves to meet you in that and actually help practice what he teaches, what he calls life to the fullest. And just as seriously and I take zero, hopefully those of you who know me know I don't love saying things like this, but I'm trying to keep here the same weight that Jesus has here at the end of the sermon. If there's an area of your life where a brother or sister in the church or maybe a family member or a friend is urging you to obey Jesus in a particular area and you are just saying no, in love, Jesus is saying that is one of the most dangerous places you can be. You're on the wide path, just walking headlong into destruction. And Jesus loves to give strength. He loves to give mercy. Okay, and so his call is turn and with the help of his Holy Spirit and with his church, walk on the narrow path that does lead to life. Okay, so that's number three. Authentic disciples, not perfectly, but there is a pursuit of doing the things that Jesus teaches. Okay, and then number four, what's an authentic disciple? An authentic disciple has a dependent heart. And here we get this uh, among other places in verse 28 and 29 as he closes it out. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So in Jesus' day, just as we do today, uh, Teachers, instructors, they often cite experts to ground what they're saying, right? So even today, physicists will appeal to Einstein, right? Um, novelists will appeal to Dickens. Fantasy writers will appeal to Tolkien, right? Biologists will appeal to Darwin, right? And for good reason. And in Jesus' day, it was the same way in his rabbinic tradition. Jesus did walk in a tradition. Okay, the rabbinic tradition that he was in, they would cite other rabbis to ground what they were saying. So they would say, well, this rabbi said this, who said this, and ultimately, you know, it would go back to the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures. You notice Jesus never does that. He never appeals to an external authority. So he doesn't appeal to other rabbis. And even when he quotes scripture, he puts himself on the same level as scripture. This is one of the reasons why they crucified him. Right, so when he, he you know, all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, you've heard it said either from a rabbi or from the scriptures themselves, but I say to you. Okay, so he's not just communicating truth. He, he's saying, I am the very source of truth itself. Big claim. And then in this section, in verse 21, where he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, Lord, there is the Greek word kurios, which means God, okay, in Greek. And who are the people talking to? They're talking to Jesus, so he's saying, I am God himself, and it's Jesus who's the one who says, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so he's God himself speaking with authority, and also it's the authority that comes from as people observe his life. It's like his life is a commentary on the sermon. They've never seen someone who lives and teaches like this. But he's saying, as God teaching the sermon— Authentic disciples are not those who try to, to try to squeeze through the narrow gate on their own and then in their own strength walk along the narrow path. He's saying authentic disciples are those who depend on me, Jesus. And in that way, I'm the most glorious teacher 
ever, right? So notice the common denominator between the two roads, the two trees, and the two houses, the people who build the houses. The common denominator is the, the bad tree, the, um, the fragile house, right, the, the wide gate. The common denominator with all of those are people who are refusing to depend on Jesus to access his kingdom in the first place, right? His death, resurrection, enthronement. And then depending on Jesus to walk in life once they're in his kingdom. It's those on, who go through the narrow gate or on the narrow path who are depending on Jesus. And so an authentic disciple has a dependent heart, not one of independence and autonomy. And so a New Testament scholar, if I can find him in here, um, Scott McKnight, he says this. I love this. Summing up the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Jesus isn't merely calling people to a better life. Rather, his presence looms in the entire sermon as the one through whom God speaks, God redeems, God reigns. So enter by the narrow gate is a summons to Jesus first. Connection to Jesus unleashes the grace of God's bounty. And so this is why right before this minor note, Jesus gives the ask, seek, knock exhortation. Because ultimately, what are you asking, seeking, and knocking for? Okay, Jesus knows you need, a, you need a bounty, you need a presence, you need a person who's far greater than you and more pure than you to enter onto the narrow road and then to walk in it once you're there. And so that's why Jesus, as the authority giving this sermon, he lives the sermon on the, both the letter of it and the spirit of it. And then his reward for it is what? At the end of his life, he goes to the cross where he experiences God telling him, I never knew you, depart from me. So that you, by belonging to Jesus, when you go to God, his entire attitude toward you is, I've always known you. I've always loved you from the beginning. And Jesus rises from the dead, giving you his Holy Spirit so that you can actually walk according to his teachings. And so guys, <laughs> Jesus has far too high an opinion of himself, his work in your life, and of you for you to believe that you are somehow stuck in a pattern or stuck on the wide path. Right? Because he made you as an incredible person in God's image with a will and a heart that is actually free to choose this life to the fullest that Jesus is giving you. And he gives you the community of the church. That's why almost all of the you uh, pronouns in this sermon are plural. He gives you the church and he gives you his Holy Spirit so that your heart progressively over time is actually the kind of heart that instinctively wants to love Jesus and walk in his commands. There's no other teacher like this. There's no other God like this. And so does Jesus end this sermon on a somber note? Yes. And I, I hope for those of you here who need it, you hear it. And in addition to that, he is giving an incredible opportunity. I would love for us as a church, for people to ask us a question. They probably won't, but if they did, if they asked us a question, the effect of, you guys actually practice the Sermon on the Mount? We can say, yes, we do. Right? Not flawlessly, but we do, because we have an incredible Savior. And think about the opportunity for those in your relational web as you grow into the kind of person who actually lives the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, 
when you become the kind of person who can actually be free from worry. Okay, you're the kind of person who's quick to reconcile, quick to admit when you're wrong, even if it's only 2% of the equation. Okay, if you're a person where your yes is actually yes, where you cease to objectify women and men for sexual gratification, right, when you display enemy-loving compassion, if you're a person when no one else is watching who's marked by prayer, like, especially for those in your home, right, but also for those you work with and those in our church, okay, what will that be like? And so let's depend on Jesus, right, as we enter into the time of the Lord's Supper. Let's pray.